You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about making machine learning work in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Chelsea is an assistant professor in the computer science department at Stanford, where she works on robotics and machine learning. I'm always excited to talk to anyone about robotics, but her research is specifically interesting to me because she talks about how robots collect data and how they learn through play. I learned a lot from this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, cool. This should be fun. I'm, I really, um, I'm really excited to to talk to you. Um, and I guess you know, I guess the place I wanted to start is is like robotics at a at a high level. Like you know, like looking through your work, there's all these like amazingly evocative videos of robots doing impressive things. And yet, I have this impression that actually like making robots, um, you know, do like really meaningful stuff like in the real world is pretty hard. Like you know, I have a Roomba in my house, but um, I don't use it that much and actually not much else. And so I was wondering if you could try to describe the state of the art of, of robotics and, and like what's possible and, and not possible today. Yeah, that's a great question. So robots can do a lot of different things today in some ways. Uh, and in some ways they also are, I think, quite far from the real world. So uh, what I mean by that is many people have probably seen videos of Boston Dynamics robots doing really incredible things like uh, totally. doing a backflip, for example, or throwing, like picking up an object, a crate and throwing it somewhere. Uh, and we've also been able to have our robots do uh, things that are uh, pretty cool as well, often on, on more on robot arms. So like using a spatula to lift an object or being able to tear off a piece of tape and put it on a box. Uh, fairly delicate tasks. So uh, from the standpoint of these videos, it looks like robots are ready to go out into the world. They're, they're, they're very capable. But uh, the catch is that they work well in fairly narrow scenarios. So uh, the Boston Dynamics robots are tuned to be uh, for, for a particular configuration, for a particular environment. And our robots are trained usually in a fairly narrow set of environments. And what this means is that if you change something about the environment, or if you change something about the objects that it's interacting with, then the robot behavior that you saw really starts to fall apart. And this is really unintuitive for people because we're used to seeing a person, uh, do, like if you see them do something impressive, we assume that they must be able to do other impressive things. And uh, surely if you give them a different water bottle, they should still be able to pour water out of that water bottle. Uh, but the way that the kind of strengths and weaknesses of robots is actually quite different from people. Um, and so in our, in our research, a lot of what we're doing is not just trying to advance the dexterity of robots, but also advance the what's often called generalization of robots, the ability for a robot to do something not just in one scenario, but to do it in any scenario. And I mean, it's funny what you're saying about, you know, robotics, because I think, you know, 20 years ago when I was working on NLP, I feel like I would have given a pretty similar description of how you know, these, these tasks like look impressive, but they're, you know, very hard to generalize. But I feel like now it does seem like a lot of these NLP tasks, um, you know, generalize pretty well. And, and it's been, there's been like such amazing breakthroughs in, in vision as well, where it seems like a lot of these vision tasks have really been, um, you know, solved or, or like you get like, you know, superhuman performance. Do, do you feel like there's a similar thing coming in robotics or do you think there's something kind of fundamentally harder about um, robotics applications? Yeah. So 
I think that something is coming uh, and we're already starting to make a lot of progress, but there's also things that are fundamentally different. So one really big thing that's fundamentally different is that we don't have data lying around on the internet of like how to control motors of a robot to tie its shoelaces or something. And whereas in natural language processing and NLP, we have Wikipedia and in vision, we have Flickr and, and all this image data on the internet. Now, um, that said, a lot of the data on the internet of images and text and so forth is actually should be quite useful for robots to help them figure out how to see and so forth. Uh, and so it's not like we're starting completely from nothing, but uh, it is it is different. Uh, and so a lot of the challenge is is a data challenge. Now we're starting to actually get larger data sets and starting to aggregate data sets, starting to collect data sets to the point where we can actually train some policies, uh, train some behaviors that, that uh, generalize a little like far beyond what we were able to do before. Um, and I could dive into some specific examples if you want. Uh, but Please, yeah, no, yeah, I saw some of your work is, is really interesting on this. If you could kind of talk about yeah. some of the stuff you've done and, and other people to collect these large data sets, I think it would be surprising to a lot of people uh, listening yeah. to this. Yeah, so some of it has just been like, we want to put a robot uh, just we just put the robot like somewhere and we like tell it to move his arm in a fairly random way that will like push objects around in a bin and that that we could just run the robots overnight and collect a ton of data. We did that for a while, realized that that did, led to data that is kind of hard to use and fairly like if the robot's just executing random actions, then it's only really going to push objects. It's never going to do something like pour water out of a water bottle. Uh, and so while we could collect a lot of that data, it wasn't like really nice data. Like the kind of like Wikipedia, for example, is really nice data because people are writing high quality content about stuff uh, that has like a lot of knowledge about certain con um, about certain um, topics and so forth. And so we started collecting data that looks a lot more like a, a human actually operating the robot. So a human uses like a VR controller or um, or actually guides the robot arm or something like that to uh, actually show a demonstration of this is how you pour water from a water bottle uh, and, and this is how you pick up an object and move it over there and so forth. So we started to collect larger data sets um, that are collected basically by humans uh, by controlling the robots. And uh, with this, we, I don't know, um, through work that I've done at Google, we've collected data on the order of 100,000 um, to 200,000 demonstration trajectories. These trajectories have uh, correspond to a video uh, as well as a sequence of motor commands to uh, control the robot. Um, that said, 100,000 is not that large by machine learning standpoints. Uh, and so we're still, um, we can do, we're starting to do cool things with that. And we've been able to train policies that can do a lot more with that data than when you only have like 100 demonstrations, but uh, it's still challenging. And so some of the work that we've been doing to build on that is uh, one, actually trying to leverage pre-trained vision language models and then fine tune the vision language model on that data. And if you do that, you can actually show that the robot will get semantic generalization. So um, what I mean by that is uh, the robot in its own data, it's never seen a lot of different things. So for example, it's never seen, um, doesn't know anything about various celebrities, for example, and we ask the robot to pass the uh, a Coke can to a picture of Taylor Swift. And of course it had never seen Taylor Swift in any of the robots data, uh, but by using a pre-trained vision language model, it's actually able to, to do that task uh, and pass it to the correct person rather than um, other people. So uh, it's able to kind of transfer this 
knowledge that's on the internet uh, to robot control, which is pretty cool. And then we've also been trying to aggregate data sets across labs uh, and, um, and also across robot platforms. And with that, we've been able to actually train a single policy that can control not just one robot, but actually six different types of robots, uh, which I think is, is pretty cool as well. And I mean, I guess like one thing that, you know, kind of comes to mind for me is there's, I mean, the pose estimation of humans, it seems like, you know, I've watched a lot of work get done on that and it seems very impressive. Like, you know, could you think of a, a human body as sort of like a, a robot platform that you could, could learn from? I mean, certainly there's a lot of videos of people doing different things on their own. Absolutely. So I, I, as I just mentioned, like we can actually train policies to control multiple robots. A human in some ways is just another body. And so we could train on that data as well. Uh, one thing that gets a little bit tricky is that for human data, we have the videos, we have videos of people doing things, but um, we don't um, have, we don't know how you actuate your muscles to do something. And, and the way that we typically train these things, actually having that information is very important for the robot to understand how it should actuate its motors to, to, to cause some change. And so um, you do need to kind of extract out that. Um, some of it just comes down to pose estimation and um, there's a lot that you can do with that. For more complex tasks, you might also need to figure out um, like more than just that, like forces or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you can do good pose estimation, then um, that is like you can integrate that data in as well. And I mean, I guess another you know really kind of evocative area of research that you know it, I saw you were kind of working into the robots learning live and especially I thought like learning through play is is so interesting I mean I, I don't know if you have kids but I, I have two young kids and like watching them learn to navigate their environment really feels like like reinforcement learning um happening I mean I, I'm curious like kind of if you think that's too much anthropomorphizing <laughs> you know AI or something or um you know kind of what the what you what you learned through that so one of my first projects actually at Berkeley uh when I was a PhD student um, I, I, there was another, uh, there's a postdoc in the lab who was working on reinforcement learning for robotics and the robot was learning through trial and error. And actually one of the tasks it was doing was to stack one very large Duplo block onto another Duplo block. Uh, and it, it looked a lot like a kid. It looks a lot like, I don't know, um, like play, like, like actually, I don't know, trying to figure out how these two pieces might fit together and then eventually getting better. And it was really cool. And it would actually, um, that system actually would learn how to do the task in like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes even less than that. Uh, and so it was, you could see like the learning and the play happening uh, before your own eyes. And that that was really magical to me. And I, that was what, I saw that when I came to Berkeley and I was like, I want to work on that. Uh, and so my first project was on reinforcement learning for robots. And um, it was actually to extend that previous system to learn a policy straight from pixels. So the previous system was fully blind. It was basically had its eyes closed and was trying to fit the blocks together. Uh, and we were trying to see if we can also have it learn how to see at the same time uh, and have it do things where like, if the block is in a different position, can you actually perceive that and then put the block um, put the block on there? And uh, that project, we were actually trying to learn a neural network end-to-end -end that maps from images to torques uh, on the robot's joints. And uh, that was 
one of the first examples of end-to-end uh, -end learning for robot control straight from pixels to torques. This was back in, uh, we were working on it back in like 2014, 2015. Uh, and uh, it was, yeah, it, it worked. We were able to kind of concurrently learn both how to see and, and how to act. Anyway, um, this is a little bit of a backstory. Uh, and now I think that, yeah, reinforcement learning remains a really compelling way for robots to learn. I think it's really cool just to see the learning process happen autonomously. And it seems like the ability to learn from one's own experience is a really core aspect of intelligence. I think that if you only learn through mimicry, through imitation learning, which is what a lot of um, a lot of other work does, then I don't know, it, it seems like that's a lower level intelligence of, in some ways than a system that's able to learn from its own experience. And also, uh, I think that the ability to learn from um, from trial and error, I think, will be really critical to scale data collection, such that robots can actually collect their own data and learn from that, rather than having to have a human uh, show them everything. You might still need a babysitter during the kind of trial and error process, uh, but uh, yeah, I think it'll be really critical for um, for getting robotics to to really work in the long run. Um, yeah, both in terms of data scale of data collection during the learning process as well as also um, during deployment, if a robot is out in the real world, if it makes a mistake, then you probably want to uh, actually have it um, correct and, and learn from that mistake quickly uh, and be able to try something different such that it's uh, ultimately more robust. I see. So I, I'm actually, I'm definitely, I'm far, far, far from an expert um, in your field. So um, I'm, I'm kind of curious how you even set up some of these um you know, tasks without using reinforcement learning. Like you, you have some very evocative um, videos on your website of, of like, you know, like uh, like a robot dog learning to, you know, like pull a box and then, you know, pull a box like while it's, while it's really wearing roller skates or, or something like that. And presumably it hasn't like seen that situation where it has roller skates on before the roller skates are actually put on the dog because, you know, with, without your, your work, it, it, you know, kind of does what you'd expect and kind of slides all over the place. So, so what what's going on there? Like, how are you framing that as a problem? How are you knowing if your um, technique is working? Yeah, so we are framing that from the standpoint of um, it has some kind of previous things that it's learned about. It's learned how to walk. Uh, it's learned how to. Um, it's also learned how to walk when like the back right leg is is crippled. It's learned how to walk when the the front left leg is crippled and so forth. But it's never seen anything like roller skates or it's never seen a payload. Uh, being attached to it. And then the goal was, can we like on the fly as it's kind of um, trying to get somewhere at test time, can we have it figure out how to handle those new situations? Uh, and the way that we do that is uh, is twofold. So a lot of approaches try to adapt just by fine tuning. And we do a form of fine tuning uh, with, with a reinforcement learning objective. Uh, but that will lead only to kind of small changes to the behavior and slow changes to the behavior. The um, the other thing that we do is we actually adapt at a higher level in the space of behaviors such that actually at each time point, it's, it's kind of picking a different skill to deploy uh, such that if, for example, it's in um, a position where it needs to kind of slide forward on its kind of front left leg, then maybe you'll deploy a skill that, that, well, um, that will do that and, and, and likewise for another skill. And by essentially dynamically picking which skill to use at test time, then you can actually adapt to these, um, to these new situations. 
I guess bef before I before I go too deep, and this is like an embarrassing question to ask, um, can you like walk me through when a dog is moving, like what the inputs and outputs are of of the model or or maybe the multiple models that you have, and what fine tuning would even mean in that context? Yeah, that's a great question. So the inputs would be. Um, so we, we have a number of sensors on the robot and it's always going to be things from those sensors. Sometimes you may also have external sensors as well, but we've been doing everything with onboard sensors. And this will be like, you'll usually have an encoder on a motor that will tell you the angle of the joint. Um, you'll, you'll we'll also have like an IMU that will record the like acceleration. Um, we, another thing that we've done is to, to measure the velocity. Um, you can, you can measure velocity in, in a variety of ways. Uh, and so we'll usually feed that in. And then in some of our works, we'll also use a depth camera or an RGB camera, and that will be an input as well. And then um, the output will also be at the joint level. Um, th and there's a, a few different ways that you can control the joints, uh, position control, velocity control, uh, torque control, or something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And then what is like the... What is the goal of the model? Like when you when you train the model, like what what is the maybe the loss function of of this model? Yeah. So when we train it, typically, uh, in terms of like doing research, we'll primarily focus on just having these robots be able to walk forward or run forward. And so the reward function is uh -huh. forward velocity. Usually, you can also do things that are more I complicated. Uh, we. We have a separate paper where we basically were training the robot to do like parkour like uh, skills, and <laughs> you um, cool. And there, I mean, I guess there the goal may also just be to run forward, but you put various obstacles such that it has to jump over something, um, jump over a gap, or be able to climb on top of a um, a box or something, or dip under uh, uh, some sort of obstacle. And I guess like in a context like that, or even like while, while walking, right, presumably like you're not always actually like moving forward, like how does it learn to, um, you know, do things that, that pay off like later down, down the road? Yeah. So that's why we need tools like reinforcement learning. So you can't directly optimize for forward right. velocity. You don't, you don't know, like you don't get gradients from your, the parameters of your um, of your policy that's outputting joint commands to like forward Cartesian velocity, and so uh, tools like reinforcement learning allow you to um, yeah allow you to like so we'll use like um, we'll learn a value function uh, which estimates the 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 sum of returns into the future, uh, usually discounted, and <laughs> then um, yeah go from there. I see. So you are framing these as reinforcement learning problems, typically with with like a this dog robot. Yeah. So typically there will be we'll use reinforcement learning as a tool to optimize um, in one way or another. Now, when I was mentioning the adaptation for fine tuning, we will be fine tuning with reinforcement learning for the behavior selection. We actually um, for kind of adapting at a high level for different behaviors. There, in some ways, we're building we're using tools for reinforcement learning. We're actually using the value functions of those different skills uh, to, as a signal for which skill is most relevant to a particular scenario. And we also uh, additionally actually put a regularizer on top of it that makes this sort of selection actually work really well. Um, but yeah, we're definitely using tools from reinforcement learning. There's also a lot of works that try to, like, I guess, 
there's a lot of scenarios where you may not know the reward function. Uh, so in one of the things that's really nice about legged robots is that actually just like forward velocity is a really, it's like a pretty solid reward function uh, for learning interesting behaviors. But in other scenarios, if your goal is to like, I mean, pour water from a water bottle, uh, you can't directly measure the reward. You don't like, there's no sensor that tells you like how full is the glass. Like, I guess you could, you could have a scale and have a bowl on that scale or something, but even then you can't directly measure like did water spill or something like that. And so, um, uh -huh. there's a lot of works that try to learn reward functions or try to, uh, learn behaviors that incentivize or, uh, learn reward functions in a way that incentivizes diverse behaviors or exploratory behavior. That's cool. And if you, so say, say you're trying to get a robot to just move forward. Are you able to like run that overnight in a lab or, or I, I just, my, my experience with robots, my very limited experience with robots is if you kind of leave them alone for a while, like something bad happens. Like, is it, are you able to really like run for hours or days on end successfully and, and, and test it? Yeah, so our work with the legged robots is pretty recent. We bought the legged robot less than a year ago, so we haven't done, we haven't tried to do that yet. Although I, my impression is that labs that have done longer running experiments typically still require a person to help out the robot if it gets stuck. Uh, with the robot arms that we've used, we've been able to do experiments overnight where the robot is kind of collecting data and learning and getting better on its own without a person there. Uh, the robot can still get stuck. For example, um, it might like, I don't know, it might, well, one classic thing is it'll like drop all the objects onto the floor and then it doesn't have any like objects to play with basically. Uh, and it can't reach uh -huh. the objects. Uh, and so then it won't be collecting very useful data, even if the software stack is robust enough to have the robot run extensively. Um, but yeah, generally we can, for the arms, we've been able to run them uh, overnight for like a day and a half. Um, usually... Usually the all the objects will be like on the ground before um before the robot um uh before like anything with like the software stack breaks. I guess with arms, my impression is that there are like whole companies and, and huge research projects um built around just picking up um, you know, objects reliably. Like is that true? And if so, like why is that task so hard? I mean, that just seems like you know, such a simpler task than, than some of the AI breakthroughs that, that we've seen. Yeah. Uh, grasping and picking objects is done. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And there are companies that are, that are, yeah, very focused on that problem, especially because it's very useful in, in warehouses and logistics and so forth. Uh, totally. It's yeah challenging because there's a very long tail of objects in some ways like just like driving like there's just so many different scenarios and objects that you might encounter rare objects that you would never think about uh and so yeah that's part of it the other thing like the other reason why it's not like well so, so that's i think one big reason why it's not like fully solved and this like there's just a very diverse set of strategies that you need to take to pick up an object um and it depends like on like if the object is on like is it a bin versus if it's like on a shelf versus if it's in the fridge or something like it can actually get quite complex quite quickly uh if there's another object on top of it then you need to move that object out of the way uh the um the other thing is that actually 
a lot of the robotics community wasn't using machine learning. Um, but like when I started uh, my PhD and when I was working on end-to-end -end learning for end-to-end -end deep learning for robotics, uh, machine like even any sort of machine learning was uh, for robotic control was really not the norm. Uh, there, I, there was a this huge conference on robotics and automation, and uh, it had like I don't know over a hundred sessions and. There were only two sessions on learning and adaptive systems, uh, and half of the papers in those two sessions were from my lab uh, at Berkeley. So uh, now, of, co of course, that's changed a lot, and it's starting to become a lot more of the norm. Uh, but there was a lot of skepticism around machine learning. You can't prove that it's going to work, and the the control approaches you can like make some nice guarantees about if you make the right assumptions. Uh, and I think that to handle really long-tailed scenarios, to handle the diversity of objects you might want to grasp, you really you need tools like machine learning to uh, to help you out. What do you think, like, with machine learning, the state of the art is today? Like, can you make an arm that can reliably pick up arbitrary objects that, that you might encounter? So my impression is that, or at least the startups that I've interacted with, they're acting like bin picking is solved. Um, and the that's not, and I think they're acting like that for for a fairly large number of objects. I don't know if it's an infinite set of objects. Like uh, in a lot of warehouses, the, like you're not going to have um, like a, a giant pumpkin like show up in your bin probably. Uh, and so it's going to be there's going to be a distribution of objects that you'll see in bins that are kind of designed for those kinds of bins. Um, and so it seems like at least for like top down grasping um that it seems to be solvable from from what i've seen mm. uh the and then yeah it, it can get a lot harder and so i think that for for other versions of grasping uh like from arbitrary uh surfaces um for like i don't know for arbitrary objects and so forth i think it um it's harder well, I guess, Chelsea, so another thing, you know, that I hear from a lot of, um, you know, other roboticists that come to this podcast and, and, you know, companies that we talk to is emphasis on simulation. Do, do you think that simulation is important for making robots work? And, and how does it sort of compare to the real life data collection that you're doing? Yeah, so it's a great question, and I suspect I'll have a different perspective than uh, than other people you've talked to. So awesome! I I, I think that simulation, we it's gone quite far, and and we use it for prototyping a lot, uh, and also for legged robots, it's been quite effective. For um, like, you can actually trade a policy for a legged robot and directly transfer it to the real robot, which is pretty cool. And actually the parkour learning that I mentioned, we did that fully in simulation and then just applied the robot zero shot in the real world, uh, which is wow. pretty nice, pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, now that sort of transfer is still quite finicky and well, you have to really tune things to get it right. Uh, and then for manipulation for, for like robot arms, um, there are some things that you can definitely simulate, but I think that in the long run, if your goal is to build a a robot that can do anything, I think the simulation will be a big blocker. Uh, there's a lot of things that I don't think we can easily simulate. Uh, it's also, I don't know, it takes 
energy uh, and expertise to set up a task in simulation. Uh, and in the long run, it may be easier to collect data in real than um, than to try to like set up the environment in the simulator and get the physics right and get the visuals right and so forth. So um, I think in the long run, uh, for especially for manipulation, I think that it's not um, it's not necessarily going to be on the critical path. Also, if you look at um, I don't know if you look at computer vision researchers, language researchers, they're all using real data. Uh, and, and I think all the, the biggest results have been with real data sets. Uh, so yeah, that, that's what I think in the long run. Um, if, as an example of things that like uh, are hard to simulate, um, anything like, uh, like when we eat, like skewering a, a, a grape with a fork, for example, really, really hard to simulate. Uh, and even if you can simulate it, it's not gonna be faster than real time. Uh, because you need to simulate at a very high time frequency. So, um, yeah. I see. Um, and I guess people, other people have talked about how things like, um, like things that are floppy, like folding clothes and stuff is, is hard to simulate. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So what's usually called deformable objects is hard to simulate. Another example is we actually recently started doing some real cooking tasks. And oh, cool. if you want to simulate the process of food cooking, that's pretty hard. <laughs> Although it's like, I mean, that's a good example where I imagine it seemed like the process of food cooking is hard, but like cleaning failed food cooking also sounds very time consuming. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. So we're starting with uh, imitation learning for our cooking tasks. So we don't have to have the robot uh, <laughs> very messily attempt to, to do things. Uh, in the long run, I hope that it's... Um, I hope that robots will be as efficient at learning new things as as people are, such that uh, I don't know if a kid is learning how to cook things. Probably are they aren't going to make well, they'll probably make a mess in the kitchen, but I mean, it won't be as as bad as if a robot was trying to learn from scratch. The kids won't be as bad, or the oh, if the, the robot kids won't is be right. as bad. Yeah, I think you might not have kids, Chelsea. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, okay, you get pretty bad. I promise. Um, I guess, uh, do you have like opinion on, I mean, I just like household robots who so like evocative and fun and like, you know, like, like, is there, do you, do you have an, do you imagine like robotics applications coming to our house? Like, I feel like just grasping could be really valuable. Like just like, you know, folding clothes could be like really awesome. Like, like, I guess what, what do you, how, how close are we to that? Yeah. So I think that for things like that, I am somewhat of a pessimist. I think that like, I don't think it'll happen in the next five years, certainly. Uh, but I, I am actually really excited about progress in robotics right now. It does seem like we're at the point where if we throw good data to the to our robot systems, they, they do really well. Uh, and we're able to learn pretty complex tasks, uh, even with a fairly small number of demonstrations and then um, and then, yeah, we can also get generalization uh, and, and yeah, whatever we, the data that we throw at, at, at our models, it, it can actually learn it. So I'm pretty excited about where we're at. I think that a lot of it's going to come down to data uh, and getting data, like invest, like getting data to cover all of those households um, or to cover all the scenarios that you want it to handle is challenging and expensive. And so I think it's going to take a big, um, a big upfront investment. I think there's just a huge initial cost into that data. And then once we have um, a robot system that's marginally useful, then it can collect more data and hopefully that'll be kind of a, a launching off point. But um, 
yeah, I think that it's, yeah, I think that's part of the challenge. I also think that there aren't like, compared to like NLP and developing language models, there aren't that many people who who work on robotics. And so progress, um, are, the progress that we make, while I'm actually pretty excited about the progress, it's not, um, it's not at the same level as the progress that we see in other areas of AI. Although that could change as, you know, people get enthusiastic about the results, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and also, I think we would need people need to be hopefully a little bit more accessible. One of the reasons why I think a lot of people get involved in like language model development is they just need a computer and um, and I don't know, maybe some GPUs. Uh, and I, I guess maybe uh, maybe that does suggest that that if I don't know if they need some GPUs, like getting a robot isn't um, these days. There's actually robots that are actually quite cheap relative to the price of of GPUs and uh, We've been able to do tasks, uh, quite de dexterous tasks, with uh, robot arms that cost uh, five thousand dollars, which uh, is—it's not like dirt cheap, but uh, it's definitely getting down there. And it used to be that, um, like, the robot that I used in grad school was four hundred thousand dollars. So uh, that's a hundred times less. About that feels like Moore's law esque. I mean, that seems like a good good sign. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the uh, with like cell phones, for example. Um, cell phones got a lot cheaper once there was, uh, once they were useful for people and, and once they were useful for people, there was the demand and once there was the demand, then the manufacturing processes really, um, make a lot cheaper. We've had people that have talked about, um, robots kind of working best in like a human-esque or hu humanoid kind of form. Do you have opinions on that? Like, it does seem like a human form robot would sort of kind of fit into our world. Well, I think it's an evocative idea. What what's uh, what's your opinion? Um, and on one front, I think humanoids are overrated. I don't think like I think you can really get quite far without the legs, uh, just with just with a uh, wheeled base and two arms. Uh, at the same time, I uh, I recently ordered a humanoid uh, <laughs> for my lab, so I can't uh, I can't say cool. that they're too too overrated. I, I'm really excited to start uh, playing with it once it arrives. Awesome. <laughs> What about dog form? Um, yeah, so we have we have a quadruped, uh, and it's been fun to work with. I I guess like there is something to be said in terms of like robots being human sized uh, to be able to do human tasks. Uh, and so going back to that question, we I've actually we've started using a robot that has much smaller fingers about a year ago, and it's actually really cool that you can do way more interesting stuff compared to a robot that had bigger fingers, just, just purely because of the finger size. Now, going back to the dogs, um, I don't know if you want a uh, companion, uh, then then maybe the dog form is good. Uh, I, I don't know, cuteness, I feel like also, uh, I mean, certainly if you want to like put, like actually seriously put robots out there, I think that the form factor of the robot matters because people anthropomorphize any, like everything. Uh, and so if it, if it looks like a cute robot, it's something that then it'll be something that people want around and something they want to interact with. Or maybe there's an uncanny valley, right? If it like, oh, certainly, there's definitely an uncanny valley. Um, and I guess what I wasn't saying it has to be realistic. I was saying it should be cute. Uh, and so, oh, the, I see. Um, it doesn't need to be like a cute person. If it's like a, um, if it just has the attributes of things that are are cute, then, um, and. I guess as an example of this, we're working on putting a gripper on our um, on our quadruped so that it can like pick up like walk around and pick up objects. And um, 
currently our gripper is sideways, uh, which kind of looks like a like a pincher robot or like a scorpion or something, which it looks kind of like creepy and scary. And I think that if they like rotate it the other way, it would look like a duck or I don't know, mm. it would look cuter, I think. Um, I see. Unfortunately, I think we need to keep it this way because it's the, the, um, because it, like just for practical reasons, it's a lot easier to pick up objects. But uh, even small changes like that, the robot is not anthropomorphic or it doesn't look like a real animal or person in any way. But you can still small changes can affect um, how it looks. Well, I did feel like your dog on roller skates was pretty cute, and it made me wonder how well an actual dog would fare if it was wearing roller skates. Well, I think there's it might actually videos you can look robot. online. Yeah, <laughs> oh, really? you can look up videos online. It's actually, um, if you put socks on robots, they often actually like, they have this reflex that, uh, it, well, it's really funny. You can you can look it up. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, maybe we can include some of those videos in this. Do you feel yeah. like you are at, um, I mean, people talk about like superhuman performance, but do you feel like you're at super dog performance with your <laughs> um, robot dog? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Um, I mean, right, well, maybe there are some dogs that are not very good. I, I'm not an expert on dogs, but uh, yeah, yeah, no. Well, I want to find a video of a dog with roller skates, and I'll, we'll see for ourselves. I'm, I don't know if we should run that experiment, but <laughs> maybe someone else has. Um, I wanted to, okay. I wanted to switch to talking about your um, your work on providing student feedback, um, and I was curious. So maybe you could describe the work, but I, I was also wondering how that related to your robotics work or how, how you ended up, um, you know, working, working on that as well. Yeah. So, um, we have a couple different works and I guess I'll, I'll talk about the most recent one. Uh, and the motivation is that in computer science classes, a lot of classes will, as an assignment, have a student program, a game or some interactive application. <laughs> uh, and so, for example, in Stanford's Intro CS class, they have students program breakout. And uh, on code.org, uh, there is a game called Bounce that students program. And these assignments are actually really engaging for students because they actually get to build something and then interact with it, which is really cool. Totally. Uh, but also at the same time, it's uh, pretty time consuming for like an instructor to give feedback on or to grade because they have to like actually like interact with the system, like the way that TAs at Stanford grade the breakout assignment is they actually play the student's breakout game and try to find bugs. And there are some bugs that are actually really hard to find. Like one very classic bug is um, if the ball um, ends up get getting hit by the paddle by the side, then the um, the ball actually doesn't bounce off of the side. Uh, and it, this actually is, I don't know, somewhat common in the student assignments. And really, it's really hard to do this kind of skewering of the ball. Um, and... So we are trying to build a tool that can essentially automatically play the student games and then grade them, um, essentially, like basically find the bugs in the student's game such that you can give that feedback to students. And if you can do this, then there's a thing, multiple things it could be useful for. You could use it to give immediate feedback to the students to say, hey, um, here's an issue in your program. Uh, here's a bug and, and, and something that you should try to fix. And maybe here's a hint for, for how you can fix that bug. Uh, or you could use it to help TAs grade faster and more accurately. Uh, and so we we actually did that and we developed a system. Um, it works, um, if you give it data, you can train it on any, really in principle any game. And we trained it on both the code.org game and the intro CS game. Um, and then we actually deployed it at Stanford and we had, uh, we basically used it as a 
as part of the greeting interface for Stanford TAs where it would pre-fill the rubric and then the Stanford TA would check the, the rubric that was filled in by our system. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then with our system, we found that the TAs were um, a little bit more accurate and a lot faster. Uh, how, how did you train it? I'm trying to imagine, like, what what is the yeah you know, what's the loss function there? I guess or what's even yeah, the so input we, in the output? Yeah, yeah. So we're using um, so we're using what's called meta reinforcement learning, and so it's a, a very unreinforcement learning where you essentially um, instead of so in reinforcement learning, you you have one markup decision process. You're trying to optimize one reward function in one environment. Um, in meta RL, it's not just one environment and one reward function. You have many environments and reward functions. And this maps onto the student scenario because every student is programming a game. And basically, every game from each student is a different MDP or a different environment. Uh, and then the goal is um, when you're presented with a new environment to be able to learn a policy that can play the game and, and seek out um, the bugs. And so we can set this up. Um, we actually used a, a meta reinforcement learning algorithm that we had developed um, previously and actually just mostly just applied it out of the box where the policy gets rewarded if it exposes information about the grade or if it exposes information about the bug that's present in the student's program. I see. Uh, and the, you can train policies that will try to basically just try to expose that information. So if the bug that you're looking for is like what happens when the ball hits the ground, uh, like, does it properly, uh, like, lose a life or whatever? Uh, and then for that bug, we'll learn a policy that actually purposefully, like, avoids the ball hitting the ball so the, the ball hits the ground uh, and to, to actually expose that bug. Um, so, yeah, it's a form of reinforcement learning. And this, this kind of algorithm is also useful for things like robotics because uh, robots might find themselves in lots of different environments. And if they can adapt to a new environment very quickly, uh, then... That's really useful. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds incredibly like practical. Like, I wonder if you could look at, you know, like open source projects and and bugs that were discovered later or security vulnerabilities and, you know, like how did you? I'm sure you thought about <laughs> how to, how to like, yeah. is it possible to take it in that direction. Yeah. So we're working on um, to start. We're just working on open sourcing the autograder for breakout, um, such that like other teachers at other universities could offer breakout for that um, mm. for that assignment. Uh, and then we're also trying to train it on other games such that if instructor has another game that they're teaching, then they can get feedback on that. I think there's a component to this where you gave the students um, useful feedback like a, a teacher might do. So how, how did you incorporate that? Yeah, so what we do is um, our system plays the game finds the bugs and it could it could just directly give the the grades to the students uh, because grades have like real impact on people we wanted to have an additional check and have a human in the loop and so what we did is we had an interface where we showed the video and also the predicted rubric scores um, for each of the different bugs to a TA and then the TA checked the rubrics um, the, the pre-filled grades and also watched the video and then potentially made some changes to the grades and then submitted it and so um yeah and, and over overall this made the uh this made the graders a little bit faster no a lot faster and um a little bit more accurate i see i see but there there wasn't a component where the the actual your algorithm was giving students feedback the um yeah so we we only deployed it for this um 
for helping with grading. Uh, and the the students get the grades and they get the feedback. Um, but we and we're thinking about just directly giving it to students, and we might actually do that in a upcoming um, online course. Actually, just to have it be a tool where students can like submit their program and get the instantaneous feedback. Yeah. Uh, we decided to use it for grades to start in part because we we actually didn't have that much data in Python for this assignment because um, the previous time this assignment was offered, it was in Java. Uh, and so we didn't have a way to like really thoroughly test our algorithm on student data before deploying it, mm -hmm. which is always a little bit scary. And so we, we knew that if there was a TA in the loop though, um, then we would be able, it would be more reliable. Uh, but now that we, we've actually more thoroughly tested it, uh, we're pretty confident that we could use it to directly give feedback to students. So do you plan to like roll this out to more, um, more classes and, and projects or is that sort of outside the scope of, of your work? Yeah, so we um, we are working on open sourcing the the auto grader for the breakout assignment. Uh, we actually submitted this work and it was accepted to um, this conference on computer science education. Uh, and as part of that, we're we actually haven't yeah we haven't put out the paper that specifically was looking at this um, deploying it at Stanford, but we're working on putting that out. Uh, and then um, we're working on open sourcing it and. We're also planning to host it on um, on the internet, such that anyone that wants to like use it, they could probably they could just like yeah use it and submit their their program and get feedback back. Or teachers could use it to to kind of get their initial grades. Uh, and then we're also thinking like you can train this for other games, and so we're planning on trying it for other games, not just for breakout, such that we can have kind of a suite of auto graders and a suite of assignments for different yeah. teachers. And then, of course, these algorithms might also be useful for um, finding bugs in other kinds of software, not just in student programs, not just in education contexts. Um, we've started to talk about that a little bit. The um, it's still something that we're is kind of in the brainstorming stages. Though. I guess this isn't directly affected. I mean, this isn't directly your work, but I, I mean, I imagine like Copilot and other tools have really changed the way these classes are taught. Like, are they explicitly banned by classes, or how, how does that work? Yeah, so language models and uh, coding tools are are it's definitely a big hot topic in education right now, and different people handle it differently. Uh, in my courses, uh, I I say that they're not allowed to use Copilot for the assignments, but they're allowed to use it for the final project, and the final project is a big part of the grade. So even if they do um, find some way to to uh, to not get the full experience out of the assignments, then um, they will be like kind of their understanding of the materials will be tested through through the project component of the course. Uh, and then I know that like in the intro AI course at Stanford, for example, um, I think they have a similar policy. And they one other change that they made was they made the assignments worth less and the exams worth more because um, because. There's actually, for, for the AI course, it's been offered many times and the assignments are like a lot of students take the class. And so inevitably, Copilot was trained on data uh, that is are, like solutions to these homework problems. Totally. Unfortunately. Uh, and so uh, because it was trained on that data, it's it's quite good at uh, filling out the the answers, uh, although the, maybe not always correctly. Uh, I think probably mostly correctly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tricky. And, and the um, I think it's best if if assignments are robust to the use of Copilot, uh, it, and 
project-based assignments are definitely like that. Uh, but at the same time, it's it yeah, it introduces a lot of challenges and, and uh, part of the challenge is that if, if it was kind of trained on the assignments, it's very good. Um, in other scenarios, it um, like if you did rewrite, if you wrote kind of a new assignment and a new problem, then it might not work as well. And actually there are scenarios where it doesn't work as well. Uh, but then it's not practical to rewrite all of your homeworks every year. Uh, usually your, your assignments get better and better as they get tested by students over quarters. And so that would lead to a lower, uh, a worse experience for the students. But yeah, in general, in, in computer science, I think that we need to rethink uh, the way that we're teaching it. I haven't, I actually haven't talked to the intro computer science classes and seen how they're dealing with it. Uh, cause there, I mean, it might change fundamentally the way that, uh, software developers are, are writing software. Totally. I, as an aside, I've taken all these classes. So it's funny. I mean, but like 20 years ago, so it's funny to imagine like how they've, they've evolved. Yeah. I think it was in, um, C when I took it incredibly. Um, but, um, I guess other than the, um, other than the work that we've talked about, what's like the research you're working on that, that you're most excited about? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm really excited about robotics right now. Uh, I'm also, I guess one thing we haven't talked about is we've been developing, like we have a fairly low cost bimanual manipulation system. That means it has two arms and we can do really, um, really dexterous tasks with it. We started doing a cooking task with it. We uh, trained it to cook shrimp uh, as our, as our first task. Uh, we haven't that paper isn't quite public yet, but we're putting it out next week. So maybe by the time of the podcast, it will totally. be out. Uh, Wait, why do you need two arms to cook shrimp? Um, you might be able to do it just with one arm. We One thing that we're doing, the one part that we're doing that requires two arms is to pick up, to basically to flip the shrimp over. So we are have a spatula and um, we're also holding the pan with the left arm and then kind of flipping it that way. Uh-huh. Uh, it's helpful, I think, to to tilt the pan with the left arm uh, when you're doing that. And this particular robot is actually on a mobile base. And so it actually, on top of that, also like picks up the pan, drives over to a bowl um, on the other, uh, on the island of the kitchen, and then serves the piece of shrimp into the bowl. Wild. Wow. How many, um, like how many shrimps have been cooked in this manner? <laughs> so it was actually trained only on 20 demonstrations uh and so only 20 shrimps were used during <laughs> although i think that we might have collected some data before that during the iteration on the task so it might be closer to 50 uh and yeah although the the performance is also um if we wanted higher performance we would need to cook more shrimp uh we've been feeding the shrimp to um uh, uh the graduate students who's been working on this uh zipang he's been feeding the shrimp to his cat uh oh. So the shrimp is not going to waste. Is, how many times do you actually then cook the shrimp to test it? This is such a different world than, than what I'm used to. Yeah. So usually when, if we have, if we have enough patients, usually we'll try to evaluate the policy through 20 trials and we'll try to do that mm. for every method or, or more. Um, the more trials you do, the, the better statistical sure. estimate of the performance you get. Um, 20 is usually a pretty good number, uh, and I think that for the shrimp evaluations, we did lower because we, uh, because it involves cooking shrimp uh, and and so forth. But uh, and so I think we might have only done five trials. Uh, 
for for the shrimp. I can't remember the exact number. Um, but yeah, and, and if you are evaluating multiple methods, then yeah, per method evaluation in robotics actually gets quite expensive. And uh, especially if you want to evaluate on multiple robot platforms, on multiple tasks, multiple methods, it, it really adds up and you can't just like run a script that will evaluate everything for you. Uh, you need to, um, yeah, you need to be there with the robot. And it seems like in this task, yeah, you eventually light your kitchen on fire or something, right? <laughs> yeah, the um, the pan that's actually being used in the experiments is my pan uh, from home, uh, <laughs> and it's half black currently. Uh, and I hope that we'll be able to, yeah, uh, clean the pan. Amazing. And was it like like a the? It's like a vision. Like it's using vision too, along with yeah, manipulating it's the... using vision. We have uh, four RGB cameras mounted on the robot, two actually mounted on each wrist of the robot, and two externally. Uh, Wrist-mounted cameras are actually really useful in robotics because you get a nice up and close view of what you're interacting with, and uh, you also get these nice invariances where, like, um, if you're going to pick up an object, the object from the point of view of the wrist looks the same regardless of if you're like picking it up from like an angle versus if you're picking it up from a table. Uh -huh. And that means that the data, the, the the learning will be more data efficient because it'll um, learning to grasp from one orientation will teach you about how to grasp at other orientations as well. Cool. Wow. What a, what an amazing area of research. I. Um, it's a lot of fun. It must feel so cool. Um, all right. Well, I think we're we're out of time, so I'll let you go. But thanks, Chelsea. I, I appreciate your time. And we'll yeah, that was fun. Cut it up. That was fun. Have a good one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Gradient Descent. Please stay tuned for future episodes.